Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. Giving the people what they want coming to you this week, the 20th of August 2021, almost a week since the Taliban has returned to Kabul. Uh, extraordinary news week for us, for people around the world. Uh, you're listening to Give the People What They Want, coming to you from People's Dispatch, from uh, which we get Zoe Alexandra. Hello, Zoe. And we have Prashant. Uh, nice to see you. And I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Can't start anywhere else this week but in Afghanistan. Uh, today's Friday, a very significant day in the calendar of Afghan politics and of the Taliban because on, on Friday um, at the main mosque in, in Kabul, all eyes were on who's going to give uh, essentially, um, well, what is tantamount to being the sermon or the speech. This is the first Friday since the Taliban entered Afghanistan on the 15th of August, which was a Sunday. And standing up at the principal mosque in Kabul, was Khalil Haqqani. Very interesting that Mr. Haqqani, long considered a terrorist by the United States government, takes the floor holding a US-made automatic uh, gun, uh, stands there and gives a speech and says, our first priority, he says, um, is security. The Haqqani family, uh, very powerful in the borderlands between Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, Jalaluddin Haqqani, uh, perhaps founder of the Haqqani network, close ally of Osama bin Laden. Um, Mr. Khalil Haqqani has been a wanted man, uh, a real fighter. But on the other hand, um, Siraj Haqqani um, the, is the number two in the Taliban after Mullah Baradar uh, alongside the son of Mullah Umar, who's the other deputy leader of the Taliban. Um, we have Anas Haqqani, the third member of the Haqqani family, making a personal visit to Hamid Karzai in his residence to talk about the need for a broad-based government. Interesting developments in Afghanistan. Western media focused on the airport in Kabul, where the United States, the UK and others are struggling to evacuate their citizens from Afghanistan. That's been the focus of the Western media. That's not our focus. Our focus is what's happening to the Afghan people. What can we anticipate within Afghanistan? The first signs show that the Taliban of 2021 are not that different from the Taliban of 1996. There's been some discussion about, you know, maturity of the Taliban and so on. That may be so, but the anchor of the Taliban remains in a very serious commitment to their worldview, to their ideology. Mullah Baradar, for instance, who returned from Doha, Qatar, uh, came into Afghanistan, uh, is one of the founders, the original founders of the Taliban. The Haqqani family, deeply ideological, uh, not interested in modulation or nationalism. There were protests immediately setting uh, the mark uh, properly that this is going to be a struggle. Protests in Kandahar, surprising. Protests in Kabul. Protests, yes, in the Panjshir Valley, and we can get to that in a minute. Uh, protests around the country on the 102nd Independence Day 
of Afghanistan. People should know this is the 102nd Independence Day from the British War, the Third Afghan War in 1919. 102nd Independence Day, the battle was over the flag. Should it be the Afghan national flag, which was, um, you know, unfurled across the country? Should it be the flag of the Taliban, of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan? It is a contest. These are two contrasting visions of where Afghanistan should go. Now, the Taliban, they have not yet fully announced what a government will look like. It's likely that Mr. Hamid Karzai will play some role. The visit by Anis Khalil uh, demonstrates that um, you know that that they will that the Haqqanis will uh, bring in perhaps uh, Hamid Karzai. It's likely that Gulbuddin Hekmatyar might be in this government. Mr. Hekmatyar, one of the most notorious men of the Mujahideen of the 1980s, a protege of Buruddin Rabani. Likely, Mr. Hekmatyar will be in this government. It is also likely. That Abdullah Abdullah, who ran the National Reconciliation Council under President Ashraf Ghani, will be in this government. It's very interesting development. The Taliban would likely like to have a broad-based government, but please, it's important that nobody be um, uh, be confused by this because it will be a government dominated by the Taliban. Important to know. During the Taliban rule between 1996 and 2001, they abolished the um the uh, any shoes with the color white the reason you were not allowed to wear white shoes was because it was seen as an insult to the taliban flag that's the kind of ideological commitment that the taliban has uh, they also banned chess now question of women um, on the table once again uh, it's very interesting in the lead up to the 2001 war in october lots of noise about women's rights and the importance of of preserving uh, women's liberties. Uh, this was long forgotten when the United States allied with the Northern Alliance. Northern Alliance, a rebranded version of the Mujahideen of the 1990s. They came in. Now, don't forget when they were in power in the camps in Peshawar in the 1980s, a survey from 1986 showed that in the schools, only 1.4% of girls in Peshawar went to school. This is not the camp of the Taliban. These were the camps of the Mujahideen. So during that long period, the United States, 20 years, didn't think about women's rights. Now that the Taliban is back in power, language of women's rights back on the lips of policymakers. Again, I caution you, don't be misled. We've been down this road before. Um, it's uh, with a great sense of personal uh, uh, feeling that I say to you that Kabul, beautiful city, enjoyed walking those streets uh, once again under the grip of the Taliban. Uh, it also does appear that eyes should focus on what's happening in Pakistan, in what's happening in China, what's happening in India. All of these countries, including Iran, are putting pressure on the Taliban not to go too far, not to um, allow terrorism to flourish on, on Af Afghan soil. Uh, the meeting between Mullah Baradar and Chinese external affairs of Foreign Minister Wang Yi on the 28th of July in Tianjin, very significant. Don't know exactly what they decided, but friends, keep a close eye at the government when it is in fact announced. Um, the Chinese, for instance, says they don't need to recognize the Taliban. The Taliban exists. They will only 
um, withhold judgment till a government is founded. So we'll be looking carefully at this following the government of Afghanistan, what's happening inside Afghanistan. Our eyes, friends, are not focused only on the evacuation of Western aid workers and troops and so on. That's a Western story. Our story is a story that starts in the byways of, of Afghanistan and will continue in those byways. Meanwhile, in Belmarsh prison, sitting is a man who has a big role to play in this war on Afghanistan because he revealed several of the war crimes conducted by the United States and Britain. And that's, of course, Julian Assange. Prashant, what's happening to Julian Assange? Right, Vijay, it's uh, very difficult to talk about Afghanistan, like you said, without talking about Assange, because the Afghan war logs actually presenting a very detailed picture of the kind of complete chaos, the kind of complete disorder, the complete broken down nature of the system that was the US and Western occupation of Afghanistan. And those who went through those war logs, those who went through those documents, it was clear from a long time ago that this uh, invasion was this, this occupation was bound to fail it happened in 2021 but the seeds were sown <clears throat> not only in 2001 when the us invaded but even before that like you pointed out on the other hand of course the united states has continued its war against julian assange there's no other way to describe it the latest is the fact that a british court has expanded the counts on which the appeal against uh, the, the appeal of the recent uh, judgment on Assange's extradition will happen in October. So as we remember in January, the judge had denied the extradition, citing that there was a legitimate risk that he might attempt suicide if he's extradited. Now, what has happened is that the United States has and its uh, allies in the British prosecution have been trying to appeal this decision and have been trying to you know, increase the scope of this appeal. So initially, it was a very technical aspect now they've got two more counts on which they can uh, appeal this decision by the judge that is denying the extradition now uh, i there is a lot of legalese here i'm not really going into it i think the broad point that we need to note is the the arguments presented by the united states and the crown prosecution were really appalling because what they basically said was that a psychiatrist who had treated julian assange did not reveal enough information about his partner and his children during uh, while, while talking about you know, while he was testifying and this uh, the cynicism and the cruelty of this is appalling because basically Julian Assange's partner Stella Morris his children all of them have received threats there was this company UC Global which was monitoring his uh, family very extensively even an instance of one of the baby's diapers being stolen so that there could be a DNA test of who the kid's father was so that was the extent, and that is the extent of the threats that are taking place. But the prosecution basically trying to discredit the psychologist's analysis of Assange's mental health by saying that he did not talk, give enough details about his partner and his children. So that is the extent of to which the United States is stooping on this count. And you know they're trying to muddy the waters by defining what constitutes a valid suicide threat. You know, they're going, to, they're saying that, you know, there's not enough expert opinion that has been taken into account. And all this really, uh, at one level, is in, in insanely shocking because uh, it, you know, what we have is a journalist who is being prosecuted, a journalist who has been for over a decade continuously in incarceration for revealing facts about war crimes and atrocities. And that is his original sin, so to speak. 
And today, you know, we are having all these discussions about the failure of the United States. You know, the Western media has, you know, every newspaper has a columnist talking about this, the past, the present. But the person who, one of the people who first talked about it, there is an outright attempt to bring him to the United States, give him, persecute, prosecute him. He could spend close to one, the, the punishment could be 175 years. And there is actually very little connection being drawn between the two. The fact that, you know, Assange is, that this process is going on with respect to Assange and that he was the person who actually brought out a lot of these details. So the hearing will, of course, be heard in, will happen in October. And the U.S. is going to appeal this judgment on various counts. They're very determined. They want to bring him back to the country and face prosecution. And I think the coming months are going to be very important for those defending free speech, those, those, for, those defending history, for that matter, because what the U.S. would like by targeting Assange is to basically make sure that there are no more Assanges, there are no more people who tell the truth, there are no more people who come out with uncomfortable and inconvenient details. So I think it's a very essential battle for all those who are fighting for free speech, of course, but also history. So, yeah. You know, uh, if you criticize the CIA, um, you are therefore a criminal. Uh, it's not just Julian Assange moving to Peru. A man critical of the CIA uh, is given a senior post. By the way, an author of superb books. I, I've uh, learned a great deal from Hector Behar. He's an amazing character, uh, very critical of the CIA. But that apparently is enough to not to disqualify you from a government post. Zoe, what happened in Peru? So as we spoke, you know, a couple of weeks ago about these really important appointments of ministers in Peru in the new government, uh, Hector Behar was someone that we highlighted, you know, a longtime leftist in Peru who has been, you know, fighting within Peru, across the continent of Latin America in the, in the region of Caribbean, um, you know, for an alternate path for Latin America. And he was assigned the Minister of Foreign Affairs. And he, you know, since those resign since those appointments, uh, there has been, you know, just constant attacks, um, just broadly in the sense of saying that ev all of the appointees of the um, Peru Libre cabinet are underexperienced, that they, you know, how could they lead the government? Who are these people? What right do they have? You know, but specifically in the case of Hector Behar, he came under very, very sharp attack from sectors of the right within Peru, specifically the Popular Force Party, which was, of course, the opposition to uh, Peru Libre in the last um, elections. And this was because uh, Hector Behar, in a you know press conference in November 2020, um, highlighted that the Peruvian Navy had collaborated with the CIA in carrying out terrorist attacks and involved the you know, detonating of two Cuban fishing boats. And basically these declarations, which he said that the CIA worked alongside the Navy to divide the Peruvian left, you know, he also alludes to the Shining Path and what role that had in the, you know, history of the left in Peru. And he had just, he had faced, you know, constant, you know, attacks from the right wing. And it got to the point where, you know, the Popular Force Party said they were going to, you know, have a motion of censorship in the session of parliament, um, that they were, you know, going to block his appointment. And uh, essentially, the prime minister in Peru, Guido Bellido, just asked, you know, asked Hector Rejar to step down and to not present himself as the minister of foreign relations. And, you know, this is seen to as an enormous blow, I think, of the Peru Libre Party uh, and the government that's being formed right now, because, you know, as we've talked about on this show, 
there are going to be very, very strong attacks from the sectors of Fujimorismo, which is, you know, of course, the legacy of Alberto Fujimori, the former dictator in Peru and the far right in Peru, which has, you know, for decades enjoyed uh, impunity, has enjoyed the access to, you know, the coffers of the state to be able to, you know, carry, you know, just rob the money of the Peruvian people. And so Hector Rehard, you know, as the foreign minister was also not only, you know, part of this government that wants to attack the local interests, but also international interests. And so, you know, he had spoken about Peru leaving the Lima group. Um, you know, the Popular Force Party also hit back at that very hard. They don't want Peru to be part of the continental project that is represented by Venezuela, by Cuba. And so, you know, for these comments, Hector Bejard was taken, you know, essentially removed and forced to step down from being part of this government. It's a very curious thing that the disqualification rules, uh, you know, include criticism of the CIA. It's a red line. It's news to me, frankly. Uh, not news to me that elections are a tough business. Uh, certainly something that one has experienced in India, one has experienced around the world. It's not news at all. Very tough business. You're listening to Give the People What They Want brought to you from People's Dispatch, Zoe Prashant and me, Vijay from Globetrotter. Elections are a tough business. You get reports at People's Dispatch on the elections. There's been an election recently in Zambia. Prashant, what's the story from that election? Vijay, yeah, very important election in Zambia. Uh, Hakainde Hichinema becomes the president after the election that took place on August 12th. He's contested multiple times and it's after a very long time that he's, I mean, after many, many efforts that he has become the president. So there's been uh, quite a lot of celebration from his supporters, of course. Uh, the end of the reign of Edgar Lungu, who was president since 2015, his rule has been definitely marked by quite a bit of repression. The, for instance, internet services were cut in Zambia on the day of the election. There's been a lot of use of colonial rule, colonial rules against those you know, who have uh, you know, expressed their views, who have been critical of the government, a lot of poll violence as well. What lies ahead for Zambia is a very difficult question because Hichilema is also as committed to the same IMF-run uh, neoliberal policies that Edgar Lungu was. He's indicated that you know one of his first priorities will be to basically try to get a loan from the IMF, which is especially important because Zambia was the first African country to default during the pandemic. They have absurdly high rates of public debt. Uh, the, I think the ratio is about 115% to the GDP. And of course, this connects to some of the, the earlier discussions we've had on why debts are not being waived at this time. But nonetheless, it doesn't look like Hichilema's policy trajectory is going to be very different. So whether the Zambians are going to see a huge change is actually a very important question. The interesting thing in this election, like we have been consistently covering, has been the entry of a new party. That is the Socialist Party of Zambia. Its candidate, Fred Bemembe, came fifth. But I think from the coverage and the reports we have received on the ground in Zambia, what we have seen is that uh, this party really brought a lot of new aspects to electioneering itself. It was one party which was really centered on campaigning around the rich-poor divide. It was one party which had a very different economic perspective. And the rich-poor divide is very important because it encouraged people to go out. Their slogan was vote for yourselves because they were like all these years you had people from outside, from the city's urban centers coming and becoming your representatives. This is the time to change that. They had a very different perspective on the economy, especially on the development of the Copper Belt region where minerals are 
uh, say, what do you call it? Minerals are very abundant. Most importantly, they had a huge number of young people and especially young women as candidates. Very, very, uh, you know, interesting. The kind of we've had a lot of posts in recent times on their Facebook page from many of these candidates. How the election campaign has transformed their perspective, their lives. So we can. It's a great thing when young people, especially young women, are going to be active in the political scenario. And I think that was one of the great achievements of the Socialist Party. Fred's speech after he lost the election again a masterclass because uh, he specifically talks about how the constitution, the mandate has to be respected. Very warm wishes of congratulations to the winners. Very different from Lungu, who immediately claimed that the election had been rigged. He was in power, but he was like the election has been rigged. So whereas Fred's message was, you know, warm, there was. a sense of how the most important thing is to continue the struggle is the the most important thing is to stick to the constitution and how it's not only a five year thing that politics and social service working for society is not just something you do in once in five years it's something that is enduring so i think all in all it will be very interesting to see the trajectory of the socialist party all these young people who have come into politics who have you know been the voice of the people many of them i'm sure will go on to very interesting achievements in later years as well So definitely, the elections are over, but we'll at People's Dispatch will be keeping our eyes on Zambia because both for the politics, the economics, and the role the country plays in the continent as a whole. Elections are a tough business. Um, Fred Mbembe concedes with a great deal of of dignity and so on. Uh, in Bolivia, we earlier saw an election which overturned a coup regime. Pretty powerful statement made by the people of Bolivia. Now there are. Uh, retrospective investigations of the horrible uh, nature of that coup regime. Zoe, bring us up to speed on that. For sure. Well, uh, as you know, we've spoken about on this show. Of course, in uh, November 2019, there was a you know violent coup in Bolivia, which removed Evo Morales as president. Um, and leading up to his coup, and then of course following his coup, there were mass protests across Bolivia, not only in the capital, but really all across the country, of you know people who had participated in the electoral process and saw that you know their their democratic participation, their you know their democratic right was violated, and people who you know not only supported the mass party but saw that. You know there was this grave violation of their fundamental rights, and you know these mass protests, which saw you know participation of students, of peasant organizations, of indigenous organizations, trade unions, you know all sectors of life in Bolivia were met with very, very high levels of repression. Um, and so you know this, you know we saw we saw images of you know the Bolivian army open fire against the people on the street. Um, in two of these instances, in Sacaba, which is in Cochabamba, um, and in Sencata, which is in El Alto, which is the city next to the capital, um, there were massacres that took place, um, where you know the army opened fire and you know killed um, dozens of people. The total amount of people killed during you know the violent repression of these protests was 37. 
Um, and so, you know, we see this in a lot of countries. We've seen this, you know, of course, the past couple of months in Colombia. We see this in Chile. We see a lot of instances of, you know, governments repressing their people who are demanding freedom, who are demanding that their rights be respected. And in, oftentimes, you know, there are human rights investigations done. You know, organizations are counting how many people are impacted, and it stays there. It stays in recommendations, and it stays in this happened. It was, you know, we lamented a lot, but this is what happened. Um, in, in Bolivia, we've seen something different. So, you know, what happened this Tuesday is that a report was launched from the group of independent experts, which was, you know, essentially assembled through an agreement between the government and the international uh, in the Inter-American Human Rights Committee, which is, of course, a body of the Organization of American States, which is interesting because, you know, of course, they were, you know, the organization that kind of gave way for the coup to happen, gave the material, the data for them to say this was a stolen election. Um, but essentially, this and this group that was formed was not even able to start their work of investigation, of interviewing victims, of interviewing family members, interviewing the organizations that were on the ground participating in these protests, um, because the coup regime of Janine Añez, you know, said, uh, we don't really want this investigation to happen, and that was blocked. Um, and the group started these investigations a week after Luis Arte and David Chokiwanka took office in uh, in Bolivia and you know they did extensive investigation um, and you know found that for example what happened in Sakata in Senkata and Sakawa were massacres um, and that you know the army and the police use unrestrained violence against protesters um, but also you know parallel to these investigations taking place and I think they're very important but the government of Bolivia has been you know prosecuting members of the army, members of the police, and of course, you know, Janine Añez and Arturo Murillo, who are, of course, sitting on the top of this government, has taken legal action against them. We've also seen the investigations in Ecuador, in Argentina, about these governments even being complicit with the actions of the coup regime. So I think it's really important to point to these advances. You know, their support is very important because it gives, you know, the institutional recognition to what Bolivians have been saying for the past couple of years. Um, but that they're actually taking action. The government of Bolivia is also saying that it will give reparations to these victims. And this is what happens when there's a government that's committed to justice and committed to truth. Um, you know, let's keep following this story because uh, issues of uh, looking back, history and so on, very important for Bolivia. But imagine if somebody had to do this for Afghanistan, if they had to go back and, and look in the, we know that a special prosecutor, Fadi Bensouda, at the International Criminal Court has an open file on war crimes in Afghanistan. I doubt very much that will proceed further. Now, uh, little known, uh, very, very mysterious developments. If this was happening to any other country, it would be front page news. In the last two and a half years, 20 Iranian oil tankers have been sabotaged on the road between Iran to Syria. 20 Iranian oil tankers to the cost of at least half a million dollars of damage, if not more. Um, these tankers aren't sunk. They are sabotaged. This is a message sent both to Iran and to Syria. Haaretz newspaper on the margins, not on the front page, seems to indicate that the likely perpetrator is the Israeli government. Maybe others. We don't know. Um, striking. If this had happened to ships carrying any other flag, um, there would be outcry. Meanwhile, meanwhile, 
and who knows what this is all about. Meanwhile, on the 29th of July, in the Gulf of Oman, the MV Mercer Street, pay attention friends, this is interesting. The MV Mercer Street carries a Liberian flag. It's owned by a Japanese company. It's managed by a London-based company called Zodiac Maritime, uh, which is owned by Eyal Offer, a big Israeli shipping uh, you know, family, the Offer family. Uh, this is the ship, the MV Mercer Street, going from Dar es Salaam, Tanzania to Fujairah in the United Arab Emirates, striking through the Gulf of Oman. It has a Romanian captain, a British security officer. They see a, a drone nearby, a strike on their ship. The second strike kills both the Romanian captain and the British chief security officer. Hue and cry, even the hue and cry, not on the front page of the reports. Antony Blinken, we're confident that Iran conducted this attack. UK Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab, highly likely that Iran carried it out. And then what do we have here from Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett? Iran knows the price that we exact when someone threatens our security. Our security is a Liberian tanker. Our security, not sure what's going on. Friends, very little coverage of all of this stuff. But these are the provocations that lead to further escalation into conflict. 20 Iranian vessels sabotaged as they took oil from Iran to Syria. This is over the past two and a half years. Now, 29 July, one ship mysteriously struck by a drone. Nobody has claimed responsibility. The Iranians who are in the middle of serious negotiations in Vienna and have a new president say that they did not do this. Dangerous times in the waters, not only in the Gulf of Oman, where the Americans have started talking about freedom of navigation once again. Freedom of navigation, this is the term of art used by US and European warships off the coast of China. Pay attention to these things. You're not going to read them on the front page of many newspapers, but you will get these stories at Globetrotter. You will get these stories at People's Dispatch. You've been listening to Give the People What They Want. We come to you every Friday, half an hour, high quality, credible, believable news about the world from the perspective of our movements. We come to you, we being Zoe, Prashant and I, Vijay, from People's Dispatch, Globetrotter. See you next week. Thanks a lot.